we speak, apparently the entire American electric, electric is deciding the future of the world, you know, for eternity today. But none of that matters because it's all going to cause an ending probably before tomorrow. So this episode will never be heard because it's coming out a week from Thursday of this week. But nonetheless, these two white guys are going to be talking about why the Ottoman Empire and Hagia Sophia matter to you today. And that's why you're back. That's why when the world didn't burn on Wednesday, you thought, I have to find a brief history of power with you white guys. Dr. Adam Koontz, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, back to talk again. Uh, how do you want to do? Adam, where do you want to do? Anywhere you want to go? Because it's really about the past to understand today. Yeah, that's right. Because Ottoman Empire sounds arcane. And some people have been telling me how they didn't see that one coming. They didn't see that as a as a discussion anybody was going to be having. But part of the reason I picked it is because it's unfamiliar. There are a lot of other directions we'll go after this. But part of the reason I picked it was not just because it's unfamiliar, but also because it's a lesson in what not to do. That is, I want to talk about America today. I want to talk about the election. And right now, as we record this, we don't know what the outcome of that is going to be. I have a really strong hunch, but we don't know. But we do know what happened with things in the past. And so the lessons you can draw from that are applicable in your own time and place, no matter how strange that past might seem. So when you mentioned that the Hagia Sophia, that is turning back into a mosque. There was a time, not even 100 years long, kind of the end of the 1920s down to this year, when the Hagia Sophia was officially a museum. Hmm. So from 1453, when the Turks conquered Constantinople, turned it eventually into Istanbul and made the major church of Eastern Christendom into a mosque, they were very forthright about what they were doing, what had been accomplished by the destruction of what we call the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantines just called themselves Romans. So they would say the Roman Empire. And that was really straightforward. It was, in a term we've been using, transparent. Christendom is out. Islam, the community of faith, the house of faith is in. And so there was a time, I think, when because of the subjugation of the Ottomans and then the destruction of the Ottomans, they had to pretend on some level. But on another level, I think some of them did sincerely believe in the project of being Turkish without being Muslim like we talked about last time, of being secular, that that was actually possible. One thing that I sort of enjoy about the fact that the Hagia Sophia has turned back into a mosque and people are going to isolate that audio and just, you know, use it against me. <laughs> but something that I, that I think is helpfully clear about that is that we see that being religious doesn't actually turn out to be optional in the long run, that the Turks were unable to sustain a nation and Erdogan has swept to power because he understands that people can't live by nationality alone. There has to be some other significance to life that can express itself in politics. Okay, so this is where I still am not convinced by you that it's merely a matter of ethnic diversities and, and that ideology doesn't play any role in these things. Although I certainly have been pressed by you to think that uh, where you live, locality, and then how ethnicity can mean that more than just say your bloodline, but even right. uh, you know the the region where you grew up, that definitely has a lot to do with uh, the way we think. 
Um, can we come back to that thought? Can we like put a pin yeah. there and jump yeah, yeah, back yeah. to as you talk about the Byzantines and are like you know offhandedly? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean the Roman mm-hmm. Empire. You know, mm-hmm. in fourteen fifty three, finally yeah. falling. Right. So, how does the Romans move from Republic to Empire One, Empire Two Point Split Half? Empire, fall, west, east, and so forth. How yeah. much does that fly in line with the uh, the real estate casino bubble uh, we've been kind of tracking in the in the later modern world? Is that a similar kind of trajectory for the civilizations? I don't think it is because the Roman Empire is devoted to, and this will this will relate to, I think, how ideology relates to ethnicity, and ethnicity is just a a Greek word for nationhood. So what we're really ultimately talking about is what constitutes a group as a nation, what makes them possible, capable of being a nation together. Right. So the the Romans are a nation by virtue of the stories they tell, also by virtue of a common heritage. And the Romans are very much like America in that they explicitly come from somewhere else. So unlike, say, Japanese or to some extent Greeks, or lots of other nations in history, the story that the Romans have about themselves is that they came from elsewhere, that they are Trojans who fled. And they definitely came from elsewhere just based on historical evidence of different kinds. But that's a story they tell, okay? So they're forged together by various events. And so the resemblance that America's founders saw between themselves and the Romans, it actually, I think, is pretty legitimate as a historical parallel. It was an attempt to be something. I guess what I'm thinking about is how the epicenter of power, the city, Rome, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. didn't really last all the way through the empire. And that, again, it moves sort of west to east yeah. in a, uh, a rise right. and fall wave kind of way, uh, trickling yeah. out finally you know, at the far east, which had endured long after the west had really collapsed. Right, right, right. And I I think something that is difficult, it's really hard to map this onto. I do believe America is at least currently running like a casino. I don't think the people on the Mayflower had that in mind, but the way it's worked out is it's running like a casino. The Romans never explicitly set it up that way, even though there are opportunists in every body politic. There are opportunists everywhere at all times to some degree. But the Romans, the the shift from the capital is in Rome to the capital is in Constantinople, what is refounded as Constantinople, it existed before that as Byzantium, uh, the town. When Constantine refounds that in the fourth century AD, he's not saying, look, I'm just moving the casino because, you know, because of tax benefits, right? Like Ben Shapiro's in Tennessee now, Joe Rogan, I think is in Texas, you know, California just obviously the empire has stopped functioning in some definite way in the state of California for a lot of people. Right. So they're moving. Right. 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 I thought, I thought you could check out anytime you like, but you weren't allowed to leave. I, I, that's what the Eagles, (laughs) I I don't get it. No, go on, go on, go on. But yeah. So, so what, what you, what you see happening, nobody's pretending like, okay, America as a force in Western civilization is fundamentally different because now people are living in Austin, Texas, instead of Los Angeles or something. Right. Similarly, there isn't, some kind of massive ideological change in Rome moving from the old Rome to what is called by many, the new Rome to Constantinople. They're not trying to refound the empire. They're moving it for administrative reasons because Constantine understands that 
you can't govern the richest part of the empire, which is the East, not the West, without being much closer to things. So he has to he has to move right, the site right, of action. Right, yeah. Right. So, huh? Interesting. I, I wanted to draw a parallel until you brought the money in at the end. To be, it was almost like when you realize that. The idea behind D.C. was to not centralize power in the nation between the polar kind of north-south that was there. And Mm -hmm. that that has so failed that it would seem moving the capital anywhere toward the center of the country might, in fact, have an effect that would, uh, you know, uh, enhance the ability of the country to govern itself as opposed to be governed (laughs) by an outside power. Right. Yeah. So so that kind of idea, that kind of administrative thinking, which, of course, we don't have the power to do whatsoever uh, in this place. But he is emperor. Uh, did um, okay, so that was my that was my tangent. You were really wanting to go back into though uh, the Ottomans as an example of an ancient world empire, religious, turned secular with ideology, attempting to run as secular ideology and finding out that the only thing that really survives is religious ideology in an age of fracturing secular promises like the one we're in right now. Because I think it was basically a lie of which. Hagia Sophia as a museum was probably one of the best symbols. Hmm. And the lie is that you can have a people, you can have a nation that endures without something being explicitly religious about that. So define the term religious, because I mean, over the last 30 years, the pop culture just had a heyday with that. And you can go back and you can search me doing videos of spiritual versus religious back right. you know, as if that apologetic really matters. I, I, I kind of look back at this stuff and think, man, we were just fighting the wrong stuff. But but <laughs> it, it does it does matter in the sense that religion is a is an English word without a meaning, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I would. I, it's so big that it's hard to give it any meaning whatsoever. Right. And so when people yeah. speak against it, it's like, what are you talking about? You know, I'm like, narrow right, in exactly. a little bit, buddy. <laughs> they could be they could be talking about they don't like ritual. That's often what they're talking about. Or sure. they don't like moral authority residing in anyone except themselves. That's probably the most frequent polemic against religion. I think that's the place that it's coming from. When I say religion or or religious, what I mean are things generally recognized as sacred. And I think what is deceptive about secular nations such as the United States in 2020 is that we don't acknowledge that we're doing religious things when we are. Right. Right. So, so, the, so the, the sacred duty of voting is not in any way religious or spiritual, just sacred in, in a duty, but not religious or spiritual. And we try to hold that tension. And you just, you just, yeah. you, I mean, yeah. you call it a sacred duty. It's, it's, it's sanctified. That's religious. Like it's right. You and, can't and the, go. The, I mean, one, one way you can tell this is when you have enormous conflict over whether or not everyone should do something or whether or not everyone should refrain from doing something or refrain from saying something. So I don't think that, for instance, just because you don't really have blasphemy laws on the books anymore, like you did in, I don't know, colonial Connecticut, doesn't mean that we don't have functional blasphemy or blasphemies right, right. that cannot be uttered. You know, if you say it and you're going to get kicked off YouTube for it, or you're going to get kicked off Twitter for it, that's probably blasphemy. That doesn't mean that you have to agree that it's wrong, but I'm saying it functions exactly the same way that blasphemy laws do in societies that I think are honest enough to be openly and officially well, religious. So, so, but someone might say you're talking about functional religion and that secularism can recognize in sociological patterns a functional religiosity of man, but it is just his ignorance as he is an animal, you know, in, in a, as a hurling right. rock through space, happens to not have anything but himself there. 
And I, I think that's naive because it doesn't understand that you simply cannot bracket entire parts of human life that involve what should I do? How should I be? What should I think is right for other people to do? There, and, and any idea that somehow we had a secular nation in the United States, I think is historically a fallacy because you just have to look at sort of religious demographics of the U.S. where for the vast majority of its history, the absolute majority and, and sometimes just the crushing majority of Americans are some kind of Protestant Christian. Mm-hmm. That is that, that the way that we operate was not built to accommodate all forms of religion. It was built, as I've said before, to keep churches from being at each other's throats. Hmm. Oh, wow. That's a really interesting way to look at the country. I don't think many people would put it in that framework. Uh, well, I, and I, and I, and I think that, I think that's partly because, and I, there are other things that we're going to be talking about besides history, but I think one of the reasons to go into history is because it gives you a different way of looking at what is currently here. And it's often more productive that way. And it helps you see why things are dysfunctional right now. So if things like the first amendment are built to function within a certain historical framework no one at the time could have anticipated being otherwise. And then suddenly you have people that have, that are not just, let's say Catholic Christians, but are Muslims or completely non-religious or whatever. I, I think, I think it's kind of easy to see how, you know, battles over, well, should we have, if we have the 10 commandments outside, you know, some state house in the South, should we also have a statue of Baphomet? Well, no one was trying to reckon with, you know, open Satanism in the late 18th century, early 19th century America. They, they just wanted Baptists to be able to build churches without worrying about it. So you have, I think, sec, quote, secular, that I, I don't really admit that that's possible, finally, but quote, secular things, I think, will always struggle to handle all the realms of human life that aren't covered by things like traffic laws and infrastructure projects. And therefore, eventually, you get tensions which are unbearable inside that polity. France is experiencing this at, right now as we record in that they, they tried to have free speech laws. You're allowed to make fun of Jesus. You've always been allowed to make fun of Jesus, at least, at least since 1789. And now you're not functionally allowed to make fun of Muhammad or you will be beheaded. Hmm you can't have people beheading other people for religious blasphemy in a purportedly secular Republic. So progressive, progressive, right. 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 So whatever version of secularism you have, and it's going to vary by a nation's history. Well, so won't the, I think the atheists would say, well, we just have to get rid of all of those mean, bad religions. And it's mostly ignorance, right? Yeah. I I don't want, I don't want to make an apologetic against them because at the same time, I think, I think we can just kind of go ahead uh, without getting into the God, does God exist question today. And, and the idea you're saying is that it's, it's demonstrable that human societies enact within each other with a religious fervor that is, in fact, religious fervor uh, mm-hmm. and, and is not just yeah. kind of a religious fervor for sports, uh, but that we inevitably right. turn to the belief in some sort of supernatural superstition, uh, voodoo, hoodoo, you do, whatever, right? Babe with the power. And and we're going to believe somewhere in a mythology that we can sink our teeth into and call real and uh, trying to create a civilization as if we'll all just pretend that's not the case 
is sort of what we see collapsing around us, right? Yeah, because what you're dealing with in collapsing around us, I would say specifically in the US, what you're dealing with is that people who describe themselves as agnostic or atheist are vastly more likely to vote for the increasingly divergent policies of the Democratic Party. People that self-describe as Mormons or Southern Baptists are about as likely to vote for the policies of uh, the Republican Party. And you can divide up a lot of groups in this way. Jews are overwhelmingly Democratic, you know, on and on and on. If you're an Anglican, you're going to be a Republican. If you're Episcopalian, you're probably going to be a Democrat, etc. The more that that body politic splits, the more that those groups are going to understand their conflicts as not merely political, but also theological. Right. And that goes also for agnostics and atheists. And I think one of the things that you've seen, you've, it's, it's generally been the case in the United States, certainly since we got rid of the last state church in 1833, is that we try to act like theology is optional for humans, and therefore it's optional for human governments. Governments that don't act like theology and understanding of whatever divinity or the divinities are, that don't act like religion is optional, I think have generally have a clearer understanding of where their power comes from and how power functions. Groups that think that theology is optional, I think will misunderstand many human conflicts because they don't understand the depth of the conflict. And they don't see that as a conflict about gods or no. God. And, no. they think, and this is where, what is it, get religion and a lot of the work that Molly Hemingway has done has been in this vein that the press misses so much because they just don't understand what religion is. They believe it doesn't right. exist. They don't see that it's part of most people's lives, just not their own. You know, lizard people have forgotten that they have to pretend to not be lizard people. Right. And I think you see this whenever you get, and I love Twitter for this because you get blue check journalists sometimes doing stream of consciousness. <laughs> and those are usually the most productive tweets to watch because they're expressing their complete incoherence about this group of people or that group of people fly over Americans, however you want to describe it. What's happening there is that you have people journeying basically from another planet and seeing people do things like have enormous Christian billboards next to the interstate or fly enormous flags next to crosses or something, you know, whatever, whatever display of public existence that they find completely incomprehensible. When that's happening inside the same body politic, you're dealing with levels of mutual incoherence and I think ultimately conflict that it, I find it kind of irritating, especially when Christians lament how uncivil America has become. I don't know theologically what a Christian would expect to happen in a community, a political community, with so many divergent theologies. You're going to have enormous conflict. This isn't like, should I baptize my kids or not? This is like, is it okay to physically mutilate my child when he's seven or not? I, I, mean, I, I find the the idea that complaining that politics has become uncivil mm -hmm. is a mark of your trust in civil religion. Politics, by definition, exists because men are not civil people. We're here to have police because there are bad men. And to, to think that somehow when you get up and you have a good man trying to lead the tribe or the city to mm -hmm. something good, there aren't going to be a bunch of bad men trying to shout him down. And they're yeah. going to be liars. And somehow, like, we're just all supposed to stop trying to be good men because a couple of bad men yell a lot. Yeah, It, it just, it seems to me a, a tremendous 
vacating of the fear of God, honestly, when it comes down to I, it. I, I think, I think, and, and I'm not sure, you know, in our, in our own, you know, church tradition, whether discussion of civil religion is often kind of a bad conscience that we have about being normal Americans, hmm. which is often a problem that we have as Missouri Synod Lutherans. But I would say growing up in a small town and not being a Missouri Synod Lutheran at the time, but also not going to church, I had no problem with the civil religion that functioned there right? because it just seemed it just seemed normal and obvious in the same sense that Thanksgiving, which is ultimately a highly religious holiday with which Missouri Synod Lutherans often have a problem, just seems normal and obvious. Uh, you're giving thanks to God. I wasn't personally all that interested in God at the time, but I didn't really have a problem with it because there really wasn't that much divergence in people's opinions about how life operated when and where I grew up, that that's probably changed. Thank you, internet. But it's definitely the case for the United States that we have so many divergent theologies. Of course, we're going to have controversies over whether you should have a Pledge of Allegiance in school or any of these rituals of religion that tied together an overwhelmingly Protestant country. Okay. Of course, that has collapsed. And of course, it's gone way beyond do we have the pledge or not? Of course it did. And I think that when you think about what has happened in the collapse of the Ottomans, when I look at somebody like Erdogan and someone that is, I think, analogous to Erdogan in his own country, which is Putin in Russia, what I see is actually hope for reconstruction after collapse. Sure. Because you, ha you have ideological collapse. You also have, in the case of Russia especially, utter not just economic, but sort of life collapse, drastically lowered life life expectancies in the 90s after the Soviet Union fell, all kinds of horrors. But things can be reconstructed, I think, as long as the person who's doing the reconstruction understands where power actually resides. And I, that, I, I think what they both understand, Erdogan and Putin, is that power ultimately resides in theology. So are you advocating for tyranny? Or are you just admitting that tyranny is usually how it ends up looking? Well, yeah. So, I mean, returning to your, you, you know, your Roman question, which I kind of like, I skipped over Empire One and went straight to Empire Two. Tyranny or dictatorship or a kingship, maybe under that name, maybe under another name, comes out of any polity which has become extravagantly chaotic. And there seem to be different levels of chaos, just as there are different levels of, you know, COVID measures that different nations are willing to put up with. But after a certain degree of chaos, whatever that is in that particular polity, it seems as if always someone in the case of, you know, Republican and then Imperial Rome, literally Caesar, becomes a Caesar. Mm -hmm. uh, that is that somebody, somebody arises who promises to bring an end to the chaos because there's only so much it seems that human beings, human nature, we believe it's there, that human nature can actually handle. Is it fair to call that a Messiah? That that humanity is filled no. with the need for Messiah and strip it from pure Christianity talk, but the symbolism is definitely okay. there. But yeah. I think I think the difficulty there is that when you're talking about a Messiah within Judaism and maybe even within the Bible I was thinking you're, within Dune, Frank Herbert, but you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I I think you're dealing with something that is promising to put an end to history. 
And when we're talking about Caesarism, we're not necessarily saying history is going to end when this guy comes, right? Like usually the promise is that, and, and the biblical Messiah does resemble this, the promise is that you're going to go back to the way things should have been. Okay. You definitely see that just in Trump's slogans, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, um, which we've talked about before, but I think that that is a shot over at least my generation and maybe over yours to people who remember something, fun- a, a nation functioning completely differently. No, I, th- I think it's a shot at mine. It's got me, honestly. I mean, he's got okay. me. It's like, that's yeah. the childhood I grew up with. That's the country I thought I lived in where like my black friends were my black friends. It just like we really didn't mm-hmm. hate each other or care. Yeah, right. right. And I was like, I'll, I'll vote for that eventually, especially when it's pro, <laughs> pro-life. But it, yeah. pro-life issues, you know, a whole other thing. Um, so I don't know. And, and what I also I, I just I think you and I have different feeds. And that's always funny to see, like, how our our algorithms or Twitter's algorithm ends up giving people what they see. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not entirely convinced your generation isn't kind of wanting some of that. Uh, don't tread on me, at least uh, that the libertarians of the 80s and 90s. And uh, I'm going to mm-hmm. lose the guy's name from the 70s um, really injected into republicanism there for a while. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, it's not Are you talking about Goldwater? Goldwater, yeah, Goldwater, yeah, yeah. Goldwater Republicanism. Yeah. Yep. Yep, yeah. yep. I I would say that I don't. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I think I think some version, not necessarily philosophically worked out, but some version of libertarianism is is part of America's unwritten constitution. Mm-hmm. That is opposition to. Uh, you know, orders from on high, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's, that's all fine. And I I'm, I'm fine with that. Philosophically, I'm a little less sure about it, but I think that Trump Trump's aesthetics, his slogans, all of that, whether he's, you know, one by the time this comes out or not are all designed to appeal to some nostalgia, whether it's mm-hmm. nostalgia for something you actually saw mm-hmm. or something that you wish you had. He's, he's, he's morning in America, 2020. He, he yeah. is Reagan 2020. Everything about him, he is doing what Reagan did. Whether or not Reagan was authentic to it, I don't even know because I didn't live through that as old enough to think about it at least. I did. I was mm-hmm. a baby. But, um, but Trump has embodied – so much of what Reagan looked like and acted like and pursued. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, if, if he came out with his next slogan as it's time for a second morning in America, it wouldn't surprise me. And it's yeah. sort of what he's promising. You know, let's return to industry. Right. Let's get our elbows busy again, you know. And right. and uh, if he wins, uh, it's going to be because, you know, he flipped to all the blue-collar workers. The Rust Belt said, hey, yeah, we want right. to build. And, I mean, that seems to be where the real battle is, if we want right. to talk that all this morning or this afternoon. But yeah. um, the sick man of Europe, though, maybe, maybe we want to go back to that from here. Sick man of America, sick man of Europe. That, that's yeah, pre-World War One, though, sick man of Europe, that's right? Pre, that's, 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 yes. That, we don't want we don't want that. We don't want World War Three. No, no. Right. Well, so the Ottomans are called the sick man of Europe before World War One. It's because everyone recognizes that they've sort of run out of their own ideas. They have something called Tanzimat, which is something like an enlightenment in the 19th century. They begin to do many things in Western ways. So this is even before World War One and before Turkish is written in the Latin alphabet. So there's change and there's a sense of being worn out even before the regime itself actually collapses in the conflagrations of World War I. What I think when I think about what is going on in America is that even if Trump has won by the time this comes out, when you think about Reagan, I think there was 
there was some kind of thinking, and I think you're right that it's there in Trump's aesthetics. I'm not really sure if it's there in his policies. Sure, sure. I think it's harder edged these days. But there was in Reagan some sort of sense of just we're going to skip back past the late 60s and the entirety of the 70s. Right. Because people forget how truly horrific, not just, you know, and, and it was it very was a lot similar like to, right now. Right. I mean, it was it, it was. was race riots and burning and all, all that kind of stuff. There was there was a death toll on the TV every day. Hmm you know, because of Vietnam in that case, but it was very conscious. I mean, they didn't, they didn't necessarily do that on the radio and then burgeoning TV for the Korean War. It was also the first era in which color media just kind of started telling you how to think too. And, and the murder rates were generally very high in the seventies. And I I think what Reagan was trying to do, and maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. I'm not, I don't don't honestly know enough about what happened in the eighties to say, but I think there's a lot more to do with what happened in the mid nineties, a different, a different white house. But anyway, I think he was trying just to go back. Yeah. And I yeah. think I think Trump understands or the people that control his messaging understand that that's not going to be possible. Hmm. That the future is completely uncertain and the nature of the regime is completely uncertain because the stakes have become at least for the regime, I don't know about every single American. I mean Plenty of people lived through things like the Russian Revolution, the Spanish Civil War, horrific as both those things were. But for the regime, I think that we are at or close to the last normal election of any kind. And maybe I will, by the time this comes out, have been proven wrong. I I think things are getting too existential at the point where, you know, I watched a recording of a Zoom call among a bunch of people who work for the federal government discussing what they would, you know, do in case Trump won again. And none of it was involved in, you know, I will cooperate with the president's orders because I work for the executive branch. Right, right. I think I saw something like that, too. So so you're are you implying, though, that you actually think uh, we (laughs) this will be airing after there has already been a coup of some kind? No, I I, I'm not sure it's going to work that way. I mean, I've heard people talk about it. I'm not sure it's going to work that way either, yeah. because I think at the end of the day, the Secret Service are going to be like, no. And the military, as much as they're going to be, they're going to make Donald leave the White House if he loses. I don't think they're ready no. to throw him out if he wins. Yeah. No, I and I think I think the relationship of the military, the people that actually carry the guns, not necessarily the top brass, who very much have resisted Trump very openly mm-hmm. and publicly in a way that may also be unprecedented, except for maybe MacArthur and Truman. Hmm. So, no, I, I'm not sure a coup. And, and, I, and I don't think that that captures the nature of how power operates within our regime. And I don't say government, I just say regime. And that is that it is generally very soft power and it's exercised through shame hmm. and it's exercised through denunciation. I don't think it's exercised through the threat that, you know, a bunch of 31 year old women who work for the Department of Homeland Security and contractor jobs are going to physically remove Trump from the White House. Right. Because there are a lot of things about the current American regime, the way that things work, that are historically kind of unreal. So give you an example that occurred to me today as I stood for an hour in line to vote. And that was that universal suffrage is historically really very strange. It is. It's it's entirely bizarre. (laughs) The idea that whether you're on welfare or whether you don't have a job or you don't own any land or you you don't really you may not even actually be literate you can still vote it's historically very strange you don't really you know 
That's it's unusual. I, I Say wanna, what I you will. Stamp this. It's even weirder. We don't even just like give it away. It's not just strange that we give it away. We like people won't do it, and we're trying to make them do it. Yeah, I think that's right. like historically such an anomaly, no. so bizarre. Like you don't want to rule, and we're going to try to make you rule. <laughs> what? Right. We hate right. kings that and much. So I think I think that there's a lot about our regime and our current way of doing things that was neither set up in the beginning. And I don't really have nostalgia for the 1980s. I have nostalgia for the, the 1630s, but we can go into that. Those Mayflower days. I know, I know, I know. So, so comfortable. But I, I think that it's not just that 1787 didn't plan for the way that things work. It's that because of, I think, technological change, the nature, the rapidity of people's opinions changing, the intensity of their feelings, we're all wearing masks. So we're feeling antisocial when we walk in the building. All of that affects us on a deep level, and we're all expected, whether you know we're voting for the guy that basically is going to be cutting our checks or not, we're all expected to be these sort of high-minded voters. I just it, it seems so unreal that it's hard to see how this way of things working, this regime, actually is stable. I don't, therefore, worry about some sort of military coup as if the you know puller triggers from deepest Nebraska are actually angry at President Trump personally. What I think is that you have massive dissension among the people themselves and also among the people who are supposedly governing neutrally things like you know Department of Homeland Security. And so I what I'm not saying a coup is coming. I'm saying more and more chaos is undoubtedly coming. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, Google, YouTube, Facebook, uh, they're not going away. Twitter's not going away. They're no, going to continue no. to sow the chaos, and they have an agenda, uh, which, if not their own, uh, is being run by, by uh, chaos itself, I think. So the chaos is not going away. Now, I've like recently I've been tying this to I, I think COVID broke the clock. It broke the tech name millennium, and, and we're going to slowly have a millennium of shifting away from that, and that f- – Fits nicely okay. with a move toward globalism based on the clock that now since it's broken and we've all yeah. f- kind of found this as you know, spiritually is a silly way to say it, but you know economically throughout the world, um, we're yeah. going to see that fracturing happen because we cannot trust the global narrative anymore. And uh, whether everyone realizes this or not individually, I think this is the way that the the entire globe will go. And what you're kind of forecasting is that that's inevitable anyway. That we were we were bound to crack. Uh, we've talked about Taleb in the past, so you know I would I would say this fits within his theory that there's been so much skin taken out of the game of the global economic yeah. market that it became asymmetrical and had to find a symmetry, and that symmetry is going to involve symmetry will involve um, those who have no skin in the game having the skin put back in the game for them, which means collapse. In a lot of places, right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> oh, Keep up with all that. Um, I, I I think that, and I I I wanted I when before I got on here for us to start recording, I was thinking I want to give them something hopeful. So let me start doing that because I feel like we just reached a depth. I don't disagree with you, but I feel well, I before, yeah. yeah go ahead. I mean, I mean, what I when I hear myself <laughs> say that, yeah, I look out at my yard. And I'm pretty convinced tomorrow's going to be a lot like that. 
and I'm yeah. pretty sure my neighbor's yard is going to be the same. I'm pretty sure down the street's going to be the same. The worst right. thing that might happen is there's going to be some more violence down on my street, down in my city that's you know 15 minutes away that's already yeah, yeah, too yeah. violent. And I'm already right. planning to be involved in there as a pastor and a, and a, a community worker anyway. So at the end of the day, what happens is the news changes. Um, I'm turning more of that off anyway. Uh, my hope in this, though, would be that people would be uh, – that this event has caused not only Christians, but everybody to say, that box, that box is a liar. I'm going to stop listening to everything this box says. I'm going to stop yeah. believing that it's getting here just from the goodness of men's hearts, and we're all working together toward a happy, happy. What I need to do is care more about who's right in front of me and around my corner than what some story from whoever across the world happens to want me to think I'm supposed right. to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that the degree to which we wake up from that is parallel to the idea of turning Hagia Sophia back into what it actually was. Mm -hmm. It's not like power actually changed. And the, you know, in, in Turkey, Muslims were in power before they turned it into a museum and they're in power now that it's not a museum anymore. So I think what something to realize is that, especially if you're listening to this and you are an American, which is probably the vast majority of listeners, whenever your ancestors came to this continent, to this nation, Understand that this nation came out of people who were enduring, usually, not always, but usually for ideological reasons, a sense of collapse. Hmm. They're coming out of a situation that to them feels completely apocalyptic, right? I mean, the reason that uh, the Mayflower sails from Plymouth after abortive attempts to bring two ships is because you have people who can't live in their native country, even though they want to, and the government the English government is sending people to the Netherlands to persecute them for writing things and having it, you know, shipped to England for people to read. So they have to go somewhere else. They, they, they can't do it. And what they have to learn in that time is a sense of cohesion that not only gets them through the voyage, it also gets them through the first winter in which half of the group dies. And I, I had this moment last night because one of my son's was sitting with me while I was doing genealogy, right? And so I was looking into, I was 12 generations back from the present. Oh, cool. And, you know, like kind of roughly half my genealogy, that all goes to the Plymouth colony, right? And so my son says to me, we have a lot of ancestors. So I start counting. I say, well, you have four grandparents. How many great grandparents do you have? Okay, how many great great grandparents do you have? And the number very quickly becomes enormous. Yeah, right. Compounded interest is a crazy that thing. It, it, you know, if if those one hundred twenty eight people don't exist and procreate, you as you know yourself to be don't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so huh. that, but it also puts into perspective not just how grateful I am to those people simply for enduring through whatever in the past various forms of collapse or building a nation out of a you know frontier but also it really puts into perspective one's own life because the reason that I studied the things that we talk about on here is not just for you know curiosity's sake I mean there's a lot of things I could be curious about that I really don't have time to you know I I dropped my interest in you know theoretical physics uh, around the first year of college you know I just dropped it. There were other things about being human and being alive that were much more interesting. I study these things so that I can know what I need to do in the brief time that I have, because the other effect that 
looking 11 generations back gives you is really how insignificant each of the days that you might think is so important right. and so pressing. <laughs> You're born, get married, you procreate, and then you die. And that's basically all that matters, certainly for the person that comes five generations later who just needs you to exist and have a child. Hmm. Hmm. So when I think about it that way, I and I think about the future, I don't think of the future because it's obviously going to be much more chaotic than the recent past was, as necessarily therefore bad, challenging, sure. Do I wish I had opted out of social security? Yes, I do. Um, Whatever. <laughs> mistake, you the, know, the dollars aren't going to be worth anything by that point. There anyway. you go. Okay, that's I like that cope. That's a that's a good. I like that one. But you know, whatever the future is going to be chaotic. You don't need the regime with which you are most familiar to continue existing in order to build a future. Hmm. What do you need? I mean, I would say you need an ideology. And that's where, I mean, ideology is what nationhood yeah. is that can be ethnic slash racial, always is cultural, certainly will have ritual, may or may yeah. not have a God's name attached to it that you call God and the name. Yeah. But even when you say science denier, I mean, you're kind of making appeals to high authorities, right? right. So it's always going to have that kind of flavor to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I, I agree. I think ideology is indispensable. I think an issue that you run into is that to have nationhood, if you look at it historically, so if you just look at, okay, how are the Greeks using the word when they're first using it? They're talking about very, in our mind, very geographically limited groups. And so the conflation between genetics and religion and politics and stuff, the reason that those things so often get conflated historically is because polities just can't be that big. When they get bigger than that, they're empires. And then I think empires run on a different basis. I think empires are inevitably turned into casinos. So I, I think the, the reason you get that conflation is because life is just more limited. So an example that people don't really think of as racial or even ethnic, but is definitely an ideological conflict between two very different groups of people in American history would be between the Puritans in New England and Southerners. Who, ha who end up having completely different ideas about what constitutes a human being and where on the, you know, the continuum of humanity, Africans fall. Right, right. And we had a war over that. So, and uh, among other things. Yeah, and right. At, and at the, at the end of that war, one version of those events, one ideology wins. And that ends up being constitutive for everybody even though the ancestors of the people living in present day, you know, Georgia didn't think that was the right idea. So I think what, when you're talking about ideology and ethnicity and stuff, you have historical factors that America has always tried to beat. That is, we can have all these people that are completely different from each other all over this continent, but we're all going to agree to salute our great American flag, you know, in kind of Trump language. And I'm a little pessimistic about how sustainable all of those people all over this continent as a thing together is long-term. See, I'm more optimistic than you are, and I'm not the I normal know, optimist, I but I'm going to play the optimist <laughs> on this show. Yeah, at go least. ahead. Um, and I don't know. I think, I think immigrants, again, immigrants from Mexico and South America, America and, and other places in the world where they know what it's like to work hard. They know what it's like to not have opportunity. And they come to the casino where you just have to work hard and it's better off for your kids no matter what <laughs> than it was where you were before. Uh, I think there's a lot of that here still. I think a lot of that's even the illegal immigration. So part of me, sure. I, I, I had a chat yesterday with a gentleman who did some work for me in my yard. 
And I don't know, uh, you know, what the future holds. I don't know what it means, but I know he spoke more Spanish than English, and I spoke more English than Spanish. And I made an effort to speak some Spanish to him. And in, I, I told him, I want to pay you well because I think we're going to live together for a long time in this area, and I think our cultures have to work together for law, for mm-hmm. family, for order, for justice. Mm-hmm. And he liked this. He, he was glad. I said, I'm going to call you in the spring. You're going to do more work for me. He said, Absolutely. So you know, and that's ideology. That's shared ideals. And what I wanted to do was extend the hand and say, Look, you have brown skin. I have white skin. I don't care because we share an ideology about the way the country should function and why is he here and not in the deep south because he wants Mm -hmm. law and order that's why he's here and so i think well again that's where this election to me is is uh uh, it's either a vote for law and order or a vote for those to law and order us from above and uh uh, which means more chaos anytime we don't do everything that they say um and i think i'm I'm optimistic that there's still some on the ground law and order loving immigration going on because people come here fleeing worse stuff by and large ilan omar i mean she's the perhaps exception that makes the rule i suppose yeah I, th- I think that we it's it sounds to me like we mean two different things by ideology. That is, when I say ideology, I'm talking about things that undergird like the idea that laws should be just and equal and applied the same regardless of skin color, which is in fact not how the United States actually functions anymore. Right, right. right. So affirmative action overturns that principle. Right, so right. I'm not really talking about like, can I get along with the guy you know, five are you, miles are you trying to get it? Okay. I wrote first principles down as a word earlier. Are you talking about like the first because, principles of America's political mm-hmm. discourse? Because, because that's what, because first principles are what undergird, not just discourse, but why anyone thinks the thing should function that way at all. Okay. So, therefore... but I'm trying to advocate that the bill of rights is that, and that that's the, the foundation of my conversation with my neighbor well, it's my mm-hmm. neighbor, you know, down the street neighbor, um, mm-hmm. is founded on a shared belief in the Bill of Rights being good for all men and that a a country of uh, men without a king, um, if they have to, uh, can can live with such goals, with such an idea. Um, now, again, evil men are always going to attack that, and I don't even think mm-hmm. it's going to work for a generation. But I think we yeah. can try, and if we don't try, then it actually gets worse. So maybe, maybe I'm not optimistic. I'm just okay. neutral. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not I'm not pessimistic about everyone's ability to get along with his neighbor. I'm pessimistic about this thing that is spread over a continent and mm. requires certain ideological agreements enduring as such. Okay, okay. That's what I'm let, let me take this toward a different conversation that we've had in a different place that might might illustrate it then. So so you are pessimistic about California remaining part of the United States for a long time and you don't like this idea, but you're pessimistic about it being possible for California to stay in the country, correct? Yeah, I, I think that secession is ideologically likely and in fact already occurs in certain ways in that similar to like the Fugitive Slave Act you know, immigration law is not enforced in many places, right? Right. right. Or um, gun laws vary very widely between states, probably to unconstitutional degrees, right? So when you have disagreement like that, the way that that gets resolved is through some generally accepted set of processes, especially in Anglo-Saxon countries. Very, very big. And the rule of law did not mean rule by judges. It meant that the law applies. Therefore, you follow it because it's the law not because you like it or because a judge interpreted it that way. Okay. That's why judges have a very small role constitutionally, actually. Yeah. Right. right. No, nowhere near where they are today. 
so ideologically, I'm pessimistic about a, a nation enduring in which that concept of not rule by judge, but rule of law because it is law. I'm pessimistic about that sure. enduring. Yeah, okay. no, I, I'm, I mean, what However, enduring, it's not even here. It's gone already. Yeah. Economically or politically in like a really basic sense of like, what should we do? Where are the soldiers? Stuff like that. I'm not that pessimistic about, you know, the, the nation, as long as it continues to exist in the, its current form, keeping all 50 states, because the problem is if somebody tries to literally like actually secede, you run into all kinds of questions because we're a nuclear armed nation. We have bases all over the place, including a bunch yeah. in California. And the last it time becomes, people tried to secede, it didn't work out so well. It, was, that it was, becomes, ex- yeah, it becomes extremely complex. And I think secession as an option, whether you're talking Christians with their Benedict option or liberals trying to take California out of the out of the union, I think it's naive. Yeah. yeah. Because I think that you don't you don't see how interconnected things are. And therefore, that is why splitting up has hasn't already happened. Right. Right. You know, because I think smart people on both sides understand how much is at stake and it would be better to control what is actually still here how much wealth, how much power, et cetera, still reside in this nation and in its regime than to just opt out of it and say, please leave me alone. So if I, you know, if I, if I try to construct some kind of Puritan Commonwealth in New Hampshire or something, and I say, all right, we're out. Well, I'm, I'm now I'm just a nation smushed between the United States, which hates me and Canada, which is in just, the five just, eyes. Just start some usury agencies. laws that allow for usury and start talking to the Bidens, get a laptop involved. You can bring them right in, run all your well, money. De- Delaware. The only thing Delaware seceded from was being a state with any morals on an mm. official basis. You know, I was, I was looking at them this morning as I was trying to set up for tonight's show. And, uh, uh, one rep in the house of reps, huh? One whole yeah. rep, yeah. It's tiny. I'm, yeah. I'm, I think we need 49 states at this point. I'm, I'm really convinced. <laughs> I really am. I'm sure there's a lot of good that's, people in Delaware who, who could be offended by that. That's a hot take. That's a hot take. I got to say, you but guys got to rise up and take it back, though. You don't. I mean, all those good people could belong to suburban Philadelphia or Maryland. So that's that's my position. Yeah. What comes after the unthinkable? Have we already talked about that. No. What's the unthinkable? Think, well. The unthinkable is that it does all fall down as a regime. I think that's unthinkable for everybody right now. So, like tomorrow, mm-hmm. the White House is getting shot at. You know, different yeah. cities are declaring different stuff, and you know, mayors and yeah. governors are locking stuff down. No one, you know, Air Force One mm-hmm. is missing, and like your neighbor's knocking on the door, and like they got a sign for a candidate. It's not your candidate, and there's a gun in their hands, and you're like, "What do I do now?" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the one that I wake up at night not really as scared of, but then just a little bit. Yeah, I and like I said, I I don't see that specifically as likely. Also, because the United States, because of its physical health, is unlikely to be the scene of extended warfare. Mm. Right? Explain that. Uh, I ta- agree with you. Explain that. The Taliban can resist the U.S. military for two decades and going because they have relatively more historically normal and therefore sustainable diets, as well as a geography that permits hiding. The United States is chock full of people who 
are not really capable of running a mile without they, having. They need a supermarket to begin with. I mean, they need they do. a they, supermarket. They must have one. They need they need a supermarket, and they cannot run more than a mile without serious physical complications. Hmm. And so, because of that, you're dealing with people that are not really a sustainable population to do much of anything with mid- militarily. I think that's why everyone's so afraid of what could happen and why we would fall yeah. so fast ultimately yeah. because right. how are we going to resist without supplies for the troops? It just, you know, can't do it. Right. And so I think at that point you're dealing with, okay, well, what community, are there communities, are there places, are there groups of people, are there individuals in this specific community, right? So take your list of, you know, 10 fattest cities in America who is the fittest person in the fattest city in America? Because he's going to be way out ahead in the unthinkable than somebody who is physically unable. He's certainly physically capable of thinking the unthinkable, of listening and to and following everything that we say every week, but he's not capable of actually protecting himself. So I gave you my unthinkable though, but give me, give me the, sure. I that was like, you know, zombie apocalypse, apocalypse mm-hmm. extreme. Give me, give me the real unthinkable. Like what's the most likely real worst case scenario for the next yeah. week in the, I mean, I, you're not a problem. Oh. You're just guessing. Okay. Like, 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 I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing that we have continued media uh, disinformation campaigns and demoralization. And I think it's extremely possible, maybe not a majority chance likely, but extremely possible that the election is not called for a long time that it is treated as illegitimate, Mm. and that even if Trump does take office again for a second term, that not only, I mean, obviously they've had sort of a soft, certainly a media coup going against him since he got in, all kinds of things made up really out of whole cloth, all the Russia stuff, right? which they still pretend is real. But I see it as extremely likely that we continue disintegrating ideologically and fracturing ideologically as a nation. And therefore, that that's why I think this is possibly the last election as such. Because, I mean, could you have imagined four years ago that we all have to live this way? No. So in four years, where are we going to be? Yeah. Yeah. Well, either, either it all flips back on its head or, uh, yeah, it's, it's really a whole different place. Demoralization. Right. You said the word demoralization. I think right. that's, that's probably the prophecy that's guaranteed to come true no matter what today, that we are going to receive <laughs> continued demoralization from the national media because that is their task, that is their ministry, that is their service to the world is to demoralize right. Americans, particularly white Americans and white male Americans, but really all Americans because as soon as you've thunk like a white male American, you are no longer whatever you are. You're one of us, and now you're on the wrong Correct. side of history, right? So That's right. And so they have to keep us demoralized so that we'll do what? Keep letting them run everything. I, I don't know. I, this is where the whole scenario, Adam – I like wargaming stuff. I like strategy. Mm-hmm. I like thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I pretend to be a futurist in my own life. <laughs> this is such a complex ball of who knows what, and it's on the fan, yeah, and like yeah, you wouldn't yeah. believe. I I mean, right. I'm ready for aliens to show up and start shooting. I'm ready for zombies. I mean, I'm not ready. I'm going to die in any of those scenarios. I have like some canned <laughs> fish, right, and two weapons that no one really knows how to use that well. We can aim at cans, right? It's, it, so whatever. Um, you know, you and I know that we both are, are kind of looking at a different perspective anyway. We're thinking in terms of church when we talk about a lot of this stuff, but the show here mm-hmm. is really to try to expand that and share um, kind of how that, that impacts our neighbors and our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But 
I mean, if demoralization is the case, that really is the warfare. And if I can even suggest this is a long-planned, slow-moving Cold War Part Two still going on with a place called China that, that is not over, um, that the demoralization tactic through our media is, is very much their warfare and that the task we have as Americans is simply to stop listening. Uh, regardless of whatever else is out there. Because you know when you turn on, you're getting demoralized. No matter what the news is, you're getting demoralized. And I know when I go out and deal with my neighbors in my neighborhood and all the stuff around me that's real, when I talk to my actual local mm-hmm. congressman face-to-face, I'm not demoralized. Mm-hmm. I'm encouraged. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's. I think that's part of the task. Uh, do we really want to be a nation? Then we have to be one. We can't just watch one on TV. Right. And I think that we have become accustomed to watching one on TV. And I think uh, that goes all the way back to watching, you know, footage of Kennedy and then also live uh, on Sunday morning, Jack Ruby shoot Oswald, um, that you're dealing with a nation that has been exposed in its media, uh, even in things reported as real events. So this is not to speak of like, what does watching, you know, 237 horror movies do to your soul? Right. Uh, But, you know, just watch the stuff they put on TV as the news what does that do to your understanding of life and, and what constitutes a nation? And I, it's got, so in this way, it's kind of ironic to me that sometimes people will look back kind of sick. I mean, I understand why they're doing it, but it's kind of sick that they look back to nine 11 as the last time we were all united Yeah, because it's like, why did that have to happen for unity to exist? And do we need another one or something? I'm not sure we would actually be united. And, I think when you, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I, th- I, I agree with you in the way you've said that. I think I've heard mm-hmm. others put that more in the terms of like, if you look at nine 11, it was a tragedy and we pulled together. If you look at COVID, it's been a tragedy and we pulled apart and that that displays a certain, uh, nuance in the psyche of the, of the society that has changed. And I, I think it mm-hmm. has changed It's because it's because, the soft candy we were sold in the 80s turned out to have poison in it and just took 40 years to really work through the whole system and get into the epigenetics of, of who we are. And I, and I mean that on every level from <laughs> the epigenetics of our, of our, our bodies yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to our souls, yeah. you know, whatever that means. And yeah. it, it, I said this, I think, last time in this show or some, somewhere else. I'll say it again, I think, before I'm done with my life. I mean, I've been – I was raised on TV. I lived on it. Mm-hmm. I had it in my, teen, in my room. I was just, just raised yeah. on it. And I recently – like pulled the matrix spine out of my neck out of my head and it's like the, the the most common refrain in my head now is what did that do to me like the trauma of of absorbing so much information in that way so fast the first 40 years of my life i mean I, yeah. i'm pretty sure i'm gonna watch tv again i'm gonna watch movies again at some point but part of me doesn't want to because i feel like i just have to process what i went through and it's gonna take another 40 years to deal with that trauma and and the trauma of seeing these images and then having stories told about them that were that that we all just believed were true, right? We just all believed what they said, and right. I mean, how long will it take for the whole country to believe that again? I don't know, but right now, no matter what you see, actually get voted on or reported on, whatever. I think there's a lot of people don't trust anything they see, and right. that's the most disturbing thing. That's why we're demoralized. Is we're used to trusting in a god that's not not there anymore. And I'm not talking the big G, right? I'm talking I don't know yeah. what you know, uh, Big right. Brother America, maybe. Yeah. Huh? I, th- I think the form of media and also the frequency of media does determine, because in 2000, we were still in the TV age. Um, we didn't have smartphones. Right. Um, right. We weren't quite, we weren't saturated in the same way that we are now. And 
I mean, if you, if you think about it this way, and I, this is probably where I'm going to go next time is with, there are assassinations that we remember in American history. And then there are ones that we don't, even when it was a president. I mean, Garfield and McKinley Garfield were assassinated. Is, yeah, yeah. And there are, there are reasons that we don't remember those things because we haven't been taught to define the American regime by what happened when Garfield and McKinley, people don't, probably don't know their first names, died. Right, right. The, the regime is determined by Lincoln as a, as a Christ-like sacrifice at the end of the Civil War and Kennedy as the day that we lost our innocence. Mm-hmm. And those are especially determined by not only what we're told in education, mainly about Lincoln um, and the purpose of the Civil War, exclusive of all others, but also how we all have images of Kennedy getting shot in our heads. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about a regime falling down, you know, the Ottomans are not dealing with being able to saturate people's brains 24-7 keeping them awake from the blue light, right, you know? Right, right, right. So that's where, so not- as you point out, when I made my comment before and that you're kind of responding to it, that there, I was talking about the TV age and yeah. and and it is true. I, I've been thinking recently, like, okay, so what is it, Jonathan? What is it that was that moment when you kind of forgot who you were and when everything seemed to go weird in life and it wasn't COVID, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. Facebook because I think more and more about it. It was that mm-hmm. moment when Facebook entered my life Things mm-hmm. changed, and I and I didn't even realize how much they changed because back then it wasn't that big a change. But it was so small and yet so fast over time. And Facebook's not; it's just Facebook, it's Twitter, it's Instagram, whatever, whatever the yeah, the social right. media smartphone thing is. And I would contend that maybe then what we're really facing is is the the problem that you cannot have a democratic republic in an age of social media that functions because the white noise, the lies, the lies are too yeah. easy, too fast, too great, and or. This is still actually the Cold War, and Silicon Valley is just communist China um, doing this to skew us and demoralize us and weaken us until eventually they've just bought us. Because why why attack when you could just buy us slowly over a thousand years? It's like the belly of the Sarlacc on Tatooine. You know, it's, it's not so different. Well, I mean, we'll see. I I think I think besides the Chinese, I think we're also trying to have an empire that functions as a democracy. And we're trying to have a democracy right. where the media openly despises at least half of the country. Right. And right. neither of those things is actually They can't possible. function together. And yeah. make me be sure when I say Chinese, I do not mean every Chinaman or Asian who has been subsumed into the Maoist communist Chinese regime. I mean the Maoist communist Chinese regime and the men at the very yeah. top who control it. So um, lest anyone call me ethnically slurring. Uh, for all these things. So uh, Dr. Adam Kuntz, Pastor Jonathan Fizz, two white guys trying to figure out a brief history of power because we know we don't got any and we'll have less by the time we die. But that's OK. Uh, we, we just like to think about stuff. If you got questions for us, you can go to refis.com slash contact and send it there. It'll eventually get to uh, Dr. Kuntz and myself and we'll try to bring it up on the show or elsewhere. Yep. You can also join the Mad Christian Discord and get into the discussion group there of a brief, brief history of power. Uh, quite a few people. Uh, Dr. Kuntz chimes in from time to time myself as well a few more christians over there so be wary ye pagan if you want to tread in and yet they'll be friendly i'm pretty sure because they really just want to understand the present day and what's going on and not be blinded by men who we know are liars with seared consciences you know regardless of their agenda so final word pastor i keep calling you pastor coons because you are but dr coons final word (laughs) uh the final word is that uh we're gonna be talking assassination whether or not uh, we have anything like that coming as the Republic continues speeding towards a brick wall, 
uh, it's something we want to know about. So we won't be doing Lincoln or Kennedy, and there will be no conspiracy theories whatsoever, as is our custom. There will be just discussion of things you probably haven't thought a lot about. No, what will be very interesting, however, is if he's dead by the time this episode releases. That, oh, my goodness. That would be a thing. I can't believe he walks out in front of the stages like he does right now. I can't believe it. He's quite a guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> being, being from uh, from Krypton as he is. it's uh, There you go. Right. Oh, goodness. Well, God help us. Um, God help us all. And uh, Dr. Koontz, we'll talk to you next time, yeah? Yep. Sounds good. All right.